welcome back. We're on 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, I believe it's 8 through 22. Let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your word and the power of it, Lord. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to be a changed people. Help us to just um, follow hard after you, Lord Jesus. And what we know not you teach us, and what we have not you give us, and what we are not you make us, for Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, let's start. This is uh, chapter 3. And it's verses 8 through 22. In the first two chapters, Peter referred to all kinds of trials, accusations of doing wrong, the ignorant talk of foolish men, and the pain of unjust suffering. All these persecutions seem to have resulted from the natural reaction of a pagan society against Christians who faithfully obeyed Jesus. Peter then warned that a time of more severe persecution and suffering was close at hand. He cautioned Christians to keep clear consciences when facing injustice, to endure the inevitable suffering with Christ-like courage. Peter used both Christ and Noah to illustrate the principle that in times of rising persecution, the right response to injustice results in blessing. He says in 8 through 12, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The word finally introduces a new section, rather than giving a summary of the previous exhortations to specific groups. Peter now addressed all, all his readers, all of you, and gave practical principles for living peacefully in a hostile pagan culture. And I'm going to interject. We can use these in our culture as well. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9 is Peter's exposition of Psalm 34, 12 through 16, which he then quoted. Peter constructed his thoughts around the three exhortations in the Psalms. Whoever would love life must keep his tongue from evil. Verse 8 is a listing of Christian characteristics that keep a tongue from evil, particularly among fellow believers. Harmony could be translated like-minded. Christians are urged to be sympathetic with one another, to suffer together with each other, to love as brothers, to be compassionate and humble. Paul writes in Philippians, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, which we went over last week, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And just measure on the majors, not the minors. We, we nitpick people to death, to absolute death. Of, of, the, of these five characteristics listed in 1 Peter 3, 8, only the word for compassionate is found more than once in the New Testament. 
and it is only used twice here and then again in Ephesians 4 32 which says be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ just as in Christ God forgave you this unique vocabulary stresses the importance of these Christian virtues which keep one from deceitful speech. The second exhortation taken in Psalm 34, 14 is foreshadowed by 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil. This again is among brothers. Paul tells us in Romans, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes it is not possible. On the positive side, Christians are to do what is right. Kala, K-A-L-A, meaning beautiful, used here in the ethical sense of what is good, what is noble, and honorable. Paul then commanded believers, live at peace with everyone. Live in harmony with one another, in Romans 12, 16. But recognizing that limits exist, Paul included the words, if it is possible, just like we said, as far as it depends on you. Harmony with others may not always be achievable, but believers should not be responsible for that lack of peace. Hebrews tells us, make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. That's Hebrews 12, 14. Robert Morgan writes, every time we resist the slightest temptation, we honor God. Every time we overcome even the smallest problem by trusting and obeying our Lord Jesus, God is glorified in our lives. Whenever we choose character over convenience, faithfulness over ease, or honesty over deceit, we bring honor to the Lord himself. Turning from evil in 1 Peter 3.11 requires that there be no retaliation for ill treatment. When you a lot of times that's not what Americans seem to do. We want to get even, get back and get even. Jesus taught the same law of love in Matthew 5, 39. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I am also reminded of Peter's words regarding our Lord Jesus' action when walking this dusty earth. To this you were called, he says in 2, 21 through 25, because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example. If you want to know how to live, if you want to walk like Jesus did, then study the Gospels and see how he walked. That you should follow in his steps. Because also it says, I'm, I'm interjecting another quote, but in First John 2, 6, I think it says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That is what you are to do. That's key right there. A resolve to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. He sees everything. He doesn't miss any slight. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
Third, rather than returning evil, Christians are to seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 34, 14. Peace is pursued by returning a blessing. 1 Peter 3, 9. When an insult is given. Blessing here means to speak well of someone. This differs from the word blessed, which means fortunate or privileged. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Matthew 5, 44. And Paul wrote, when you are cursed, we bless. In 1 Corinthians 4, 12. This is the compassionate way that Christians should pursue peace. As a result, believers inherit a blessing. And it takes, and the world takes note of that because it's so otherworldly. It's not, it's not of the flesh. It is of the spirit. For the eyes of the Lord watch over the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. The eyes and ears of the Lord are figures of speech and anthropomorphisms which attribute human physical characteristics to God. Here the figures emphasize God's watchful oversight and careful attention to his people's needs. I love that. Because of this, we are never to complain and kick against God's best for our lives, even though it may not be and often is not of our choosing. He did not dig it when the Israelites did it in the desert, and he doesn't now, to say the least. Persecution occurred and will occur. It is a given in following hard after Christ, in spite of believers' desire to live peacefully and their eagerness to do good to others. It can be most frustrating, to say the least. Peter encouraged his readers with the fact that the right response to undeserved suffering would result in blessing. It matters how we respond. Don't be a reactionary. Think about before you speak. In the last part of chapter 3, he presented the principle in verse 13 through 17 and provided examples in verses 18 through 22. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ Jesus as Lord. Is he Lord of your life, which is owner and master? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, powers, in submission to him. Of the Spurgeon writes, Famine pinched all the nations 
and it seemed inevitable that Jacob and his family should suffer great want. But the God of Providence, who never forgets the objects of electing love, never had stored a granary for his people by giving the Egyptians warning of the scarcity and leading them to treasure up the drain, grain of the years of plenty. Little did Jacob expect deliverance from Egypt, but there was the grain in store for him. God often works in mysterious ways, and he did in this way as well. Believers, though all things are apparently against you, Rest assured that God has made a reservation on your behalf. In the catalog of your griefs, there is a saving clause. That's always the beauty from the ash. That's always making, we know that in all things, God works for the good. The thing isn't good, but he's working for the good. Somehow he will deliver you. Somewhere he will provide for you. The quarter from which, you re from which your rescue shall arise may be a very unexpected one. But help will assuredly come in your, in your extremity, and you shall magnify the name of the Lord. If people do not feed you, ravens shall, just like they did Elijah. And if earthly yields no wheat, heaven shall drop the manna, just like he did for the Israelites. Therefore, be of good courage and rest quietly in the Lord. God can make the sun rise in the west if he pleases. He can do anything he wants and make the source of distress a channel of delight. Has ever that happened to you that your source of distress became a channel of delight? The grain in Egypt, tell people, show people, proclaim it from the heights what he has done for you. The grain in Egypt was all in the hands of the beloved Joseph. He opened or closed the granaries at will. And so the riches of providence are all in the absolute power of our Lord Jesus, who will dispense them freely to his people. Joseph was abundantly ready to help his own family. And Jesus is unceasing in his faithful care for his brothers and sisters. Our business to, is to go after the help which is provided for us. We must not sit still in despondency, but move quickly, waken ourselves. Prayer will bear us up soon in the presence of our royal brother. Once before his throne, we have only to ask and have. His stores are not exhausted. There is grain still. His heart is not hard. He will give the grain to us. Lord, forgive our unbelief. And this evening, constrain us to draw largely from the fullness of your grace, giving way to grace, giving way to grace. Who is going to harm you? The context of Peter's question makes it almost rhetorical. The adversary, through physical suffering or material hardship, would distress those who were eager, who were zealous to do good. No real harm can come to those who belong to Christ. Nothing can harm your soul. Paul tells us in Romans, and we know, just what I was saying before, and we know, we know that we know that we know that in all things, that in everything that is allowed in the believer's life, God is working something for the good of that believer and for those all around him as well for those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. For even if suffering should occur, which it more than likely will, because Jesus has promised that, Christians are blessed and thus should not be frightened. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. 
The word here translated blessed in verse 13 was used by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3 through 11. To be blessed in this context does not mean to feel delighted or related and to be up and down with a galio joy, jumping up and down, but rather to be highly privileged. We are highly privileged. Christians are not to be afraid of what men can do to them. Jesus tells us in Matthew, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body into hell. Matthew 10.28 Consequently, 1 Peter 3.14 concludes with a quotation from Isaiah 8.12, which in context is part of an exhortation to fear God, fear God rather than to fear men. Again, Matthew Henry writes, um, let's see, what is, what did Matthew Henry write? Let's see, he writes, he led them by a straight way. He's talking about trials. These trials are for the testing and strengthening of your faith. They are waves that wash you further upon the rock, which is Jesus. They are winds which waft your ship with more words so it might be said of you. He guided them to their desired haven by honor and dishonor, by evil report and by good report, by plenty and by poverty, by joy and by distress, by persecution and by peace. By all these things is the life of your souls maintained. And by each of these are you helped on your way. Oh, do not think, believer, that your sorrows are out of God's plan. No. They are necessary parts of it. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom. Learn then, even to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Oh, let my trembling soul be still, and wait that wise, thy holy will. I cannot, Lord, thy purpose see, yet all is well, since ruled by thee. All is part of his loving plan. Oh, it may not feel loving at the time, it's all a part of his plan. Peter next tells us in their hearts, Christians are to be set apart, to set apart Christ Jesus as Lord. Only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, can go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? That's Alexander McLarion. Christians should overcome fear by sanctifying, making, make separate from others, Christ Jesus as their Lord, meaning my power, owner, master, and God. This is hugely important, ladies. Jesus tells us in Luke, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you do that and do not do what I say? If I'm your owner and if I'm your master, why aren't you obeying me? Jesus Christ will be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all, Augustine said. As a result, Christians should always be prepared, always be ready to give the reason for which is the defense which a defendant makes before a judge for our hope in Christ. Such an oral defense should be consistent with our set-apart conduct. Do your words match your walk? Make sure that they do. A good question for us to ponder is, do people see a difference in our lives enough to even ask about the hope that is within us? Or do we look just exactly like the world? If you want to make a difference for the, in the world for Christ, you cannot blend with the world. And that's the hard part. 
because the world is very loud and it's very easy to blend with. A believer's testimony should not be given in an arrogant manner, but with gentleness and respect. And who can refute your own testimony? What's real, what happened to you happened to you. We are not to fear. Christians who are not afraid in the face of persecution are able to witness respectfully to their faith in Christ. They then keep a clear conscience. Peter may have been alluding to the occasion when he denied Christ out of fear in words that were neither gentle nor respectful. Christians who suffer unjustly and keep a clear conscience put to shame those who slander the good behavior of Christ in Christ their good behavior in Christ. Once again, Peter encouraged his readers with the fact that a good behavior is the best defense against unjust punishment and persecution. Not all these elaborate words, but how do you live your life? However, because if you don't believe it enough to live it, then why should anybody else believe it? However, Peter pointed out that it may be God's will for them to suffer for doing good. This, as he told them earlier, is commendable before God and is therefore better than deserved suffering for doing evil. Christ provides the perfect example. He suffered for doing what was right. And boy, didn't it seem like the end of the world. The sinless life provokes the unjust hostilities of evil men because the darkness does not like the light. It flees from the light. However, he did not fear men, but trusted himself to God. As Peter told us in chapter 2, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted his life to him who judges justly. Christ clearly stated his purpose and committed himself to a course of action. He died in mankind's place, keeping his conscience clear. As a result, he received a tremendous blessing and reward his own resurrection and exaltation. In Philippians again, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. J.M.E. Ross wrote in his devotional commentary that verse 18 was one of the shortest and simplest and yet one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament of the meaning of the cross of Jesus, which reads, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body that made alive by the Spirit. Christ died for sins once and for all is clearly contrasted with the Old Testament yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and declares the complete sufficiency of Christ's death. The substitutionary nature of Christ's death is indicated by the phrase, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ, the righteous one, uniquely qualified to die as a substitute or for in place of or instead of the unrighteous ones, which is you, which is me. The divine purpose for Christ's sacrificial death was man's reconciliation to bring people to God because the wages of sin is death and every single person born since Adam on is a sinner in need of a savior and we can't muster it up. Peter concluded his summary of Christ's redemptive work by referring to his resurrection. 
Though Christ was put to death in the body, he was made alive by the Spirit. By the Spirit translates into one word which could refer to the third person of the Trinity as the agent of Christ's resurrection, through whom he preached to the spirits in prison has been subject to many interpretations. The most plausible seems to be that the spirits described in 1 Peter 3.20 are those who were disobedient when God waited patiently for Noah to finish building the ark. The human race had become so corrupt, it had become so full of violence that God's wrath would destroy all flesh except Noah who walked with God and Noah's family. God does have a line in the sand, and he does finally say, enough. The people had rebelled against the message of God during the years the ark was being built. Much akin to Sodom and Gomorrah, God declared he would not tolerate the people's wickedness forever. Genesis tells us, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on earth and how, how great it had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination. Can you imagine? The world was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. He tore his holy heart up, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Since the entire human race, except Noah, was pursuing evil, God determined to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. The phrase spirits in prison may refer to immaterial spirits, but it could have other significance as well. The ungodly are constantly spoken of in Scripture as being in a state of spiritual imprisonment or spiritual bondage. This verse may therefore signify that Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, warned those in Noah's day who were in bondage to sin by the mouth of Noah himself, who was identified in 2 Peter 2, 5 as a preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter 2, 4-10 tells us, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was witnessed, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If this is so, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature. Believe from that, cling to him, and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. The problem remains is to when Christ preached to these spirits, the most plausible would be the spirit of the pre-incarnate Christ indwelling God fearing Noah ministering to these people by means of the Holy Spirit. 
Peter refers to the Christ, spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets. 1 Peter 1.11 says, Considering, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's 1 Peter 1, 10-11. Noah is presented as an example of one who committed himself to a course of action for the sake of a clear conscience before God, though it meant enduring harsh ridicule. Noah did not fear men, but obeyed God and proclaimed his message. Noah's reward for keeping a clear conscience in unjust suffering was the salvation of himself and his family, who were saved through water being brought safely through the flood. And this water symbolizes baptism. Baptism represents a complete break with one's past life. As the flood wiped away the old sinful world, so baptism pictures one's break from the old sinful life and his entrance into a new life in Christ. Peter now applied is symbolic of our stand in Christ. Peter now applied to his readers the principle he set forth. He exhorted them to have the courage to commit themselves to a course of action by taking a public stand for Christ through baptism. The act of public baptism would save them from the temptation to sacrifice their good conscience in order to avoid persecution. For the first century Christian, baptism meant he was following through on his commitment to Christ, regardless of the consequences. It's a claim that I am in Christ. To be sure, baptism does not save us from sin, but it is symbolic of what has already occurred in our hearts and lives of one who has trusted Jesus as their Savior. Baptism identifies us with Jesus. It is not merely a ceremonial act of physical purification, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God, a following of his ways. To make the source of salvation perfectly clear, Peter added by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mentioning Christ's resurrection returned Peter's thoughts to his original example. And so he concluded his digression and completed his first illustration with a reference to Christ's reward and his blessing. Having witnessed Christ's physical ascension on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter wrote that Christ had, has gone into heaven. The reward for Christ's faithfulness is seen in his exaltation over all things. He is enthroned at God's right hand, the seat of supreme honor, to rule and to reign over all creation. In our culture today, trusting your gut and being true to yourself are exalted above submitting our minds to the Word of God. As a result, logical thinking has been dethroned and pure emotionalism reigns. We no longer believe the truth, and there is absolute truth. We believe in how we feel, and the fruit of this belief is evidenced on the nightly news, in our conversations with friends, and perhaps even around our dinner tables. It therefore remains supremely important for ourselves and our families that we get into the Word of God and let the Word get into you. Let it guide you. Let it lead you. Let it transform your heart. It is alive and active. 
It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces the dividing soul and spirit joints and matter. And it judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. Because the heart is deceitful beyond all cure. You can understand it. But the Lord searches the hearts. And he and, and so does the word. It therefore remains supremely important to be into the word and apply its truth to our lives. Scripture tells us we are to walk as Jesus walked. And we know how he walked. Through God's revealed will of Scripture, never, never neglect it. As Churchill said, never, never, never. Father, just thank you for this powerful word. Help us never to neglect it. Help it to penetrate us, Lord, and help us to flow in us so that we can, we can pour forth its truths in our actions, not even using our mouths, Lord, that we would be a changed people and we would change our spheres for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.